0: I read a fascinating article this week about the first ransom note in American history. Back in 1874, two boys, uh, Charlie and Walter Ross, ages 4 and 5, were abducted from their front lawn in wealthy Germantown, Pennsylvania. The kidnappers lured the boys into their carriage Uh, with promises of candy and fireworks, and for unknown reasons, Walter was released, but Charlie was kept for ransom. One of the ransom notes read like this. This is the lever that moved the rock that hides him from you, $20,000. Not $1 less. Impossible. Impossible. You cannot get him without it. $20,000 in today's economy would be about $400,000. For fear of uh, additional abductions, the police paid no ransom. Instead, they offered a $20,000 reward for information leading to the kidnappers. The news went national. It created a flurry of activity uh, filled with imposters trying to get their hands on the money, which complicated things. Sadly, Charlie was never reconciled with his family. Four years ago in Philadelphia, Bridget and Rebecca Flynn were looking through some family artifacts to find a vintage picture uh, for Rebecca's bridal shower invitation and found a stack of letters tied together with a shoelace. Now, thinking they were love letters, uh, they opened the bundle to find 22 ransom notes which connected them back to Charlie Ross's unsolved mystery. Ironically, A collector with interest in historic Germantown uh, purchased the letters for a total of $20,000. Why didn't Charlie's seemingly wealthy parents just pay the ransom and get Charlie back? They couldn't. Uh, the, The stock market crash of 1873 put the Rosses in deep financial debt. Charlie's freedom was never obtained because no one paid the ransom. If only someone would have paid Charlie's ransom, Charlie would have been reconciled to his family. Last week, I sought to show you the the beautiful truth that God has a compassionate and evangelistic heart and that through Christ, God accomplished salvation for you in order to conform your heart to his. Which stimulates you to pray fervently for the salvation of unbelievers. You you may not have understood um, all of the intricacies of some of the points that I made last week. Yet the principal truth is profoundly helpful to you and me. Now I want to lead you higher up in to the beautiful mountain range of the gospel. So that you can see more of the breathtaking beauty and glory of God. Uh, We may ascend peaks this morning that you've never climbed. Uh, The air might seem pretty thin on the top of some of these peaks. uh, But as you breathe deeply, as you relax, and as you adjust, I promise you there are spectacular wonders to see. Catching a glimpse of God's glory from some of these peaks can invigorate evangelistic prayer. And nothing other than the gospel can give us a breathtaking view of the glory of God. Not renovations, candles, crosses, altars, instruments, stained glass, or anything other than the gospel. The gospel alone conforms our hearts to Christ. How is it that the gospel is the only means of spiritual growth and vitality? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because the word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And they call on him when they believe in him. And they believe in him when they hear about him. And they hear about him when someone preaches him. Because woe to us if we do not preach the gospel. Hopefully you see that the gospel alone creates urgency in the church to pray for the salvation and godliness of others so that God is glorified and pleased in the advance and application of the gospel in all of life. I should alert you that today's sermon is theologically demanding. It is rigorous it may challenge assumptions or views that you have always held about the the gospel. I have personally been greatly challenged by this sermon. It has been rigorous for me to think clearly and to discern how to convey these truths clearly and concisely. Uh, My prayer is that the Spirit will open your heart and mind to show you the beauty of Christ in these truths. My outline is simple. There is one God, one mediator, one ransom, one gospel, and one This sermon is theologically exacting, and you may not grasp everything immediately, but I don't want you to grow disheartened nor do I want you to miss the big picture here. So here's the sermon in a nutshell. And maybe some of you are like, well, just give us the sermon in a nutshell, pray and be done with it. Ah, no, no, no. All right, but here it is in a nutshell. There is one God who has a compassionate and evangelistic heart. And he provided one mediator, the man Jesus Christ, to stand between God and sinners who have offended his holiness. Those who are in Christ have a mediator, Christ Jesus, who has given his life as an actual and effective substitute ransom, which has satisfied the legal demands of the law they have broken, satisfied the justice of God they deserve, purchased, tr- removed the wrath of God they should have suffered, fully atoned for their sin, purchased true and operative freedom for them, and reconcile them to God by grace through faith so they can enjoy loving relationship with God. All of that is yours in Christ alone, which should kindle abundant gratitude in your life, inspire you to pray for the salvation of unbelievers and to evangelize with zeal for the glory of God. Hopefully, That right there is impressed into your heart and mind. And yet we begin our climb in the mountain range of the gospel right here. There is one God. When Paul said, for there is one God, he established monotheism as the basis of evangelistic prayer. Monotheism is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. The Greco-Roman world, including Ephesus, was polytheistic with a pantheon of gods, Paul revealed how different the Christian faith actually is. There is only one God from whom salvation comes and to whom evangelistic prayer is offered. No other religion, no other religion has a compassionate and evangelistic God at the center. Islam, Judaism, Deism, and other religions embrace monotheism, yet also a form of works righteousness, yet in one fell swoop, Paul delegitimized every monotheistic religion except Christianity, along with pluralism, which says there are multiple paths to God. Listen carefully. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, men, the man Christ Jesus. There is one Mediator. A mediator is a go-between. A go-between who works to reconcile opposing sides. Maybe there's a, a really bitter divorce situation or some corporate clash over some unpaid funds. And a mediator steps between both sides and 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 helps them work towards reconciliation or to work out a resolution. Mediation is central to the gospel. See, our sin alienated us from God. We broke God's law and offended Him, which provoked a response in God. That provoked His holy anger and His holy justice and set up us against Him and set Him against us. Our sin has made us enemies of God, which is a horrific and an unbearable reality, Nahum prophesied like this. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The law reveals to us that because of our sin, we are not friends of God. And yet the gospel... The gospel provides us with a mediator who can bring peace with God and reconcile us to God. The gospel does that. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. This is amazing grace. And this is the most incredible news you and I can hear and know. There is someone, the man, Christ Jesus, capable of interceding For us and bringing peace with God. How we love that man. How we love that mediator who has done it for us. By saying the man Christ Jesus. Paul affirmed his humanity and identification with the human race. Without diminishing his deity. The Jews may have wanted Paul to say the Jew Christ Jesus. But man shows his solidarity with humanity. Christ's mediatorial work is for every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Dr. Philip Ryken helpfully noted, and listen carefully. Quote: The reason Jesus is the only mediator is that he is the only one who has both a divine nature and a human nature. If we want to get to God, we have to go through this one divine person. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is able to represent and to reconcile both man and God because he has the most intimate sympathy with both parties. As a member of the Trinity, he has communion with the Father and the Spirit. As a member of the human race, he has unity with us, end of quote. Dead relatives, saints. Pastors, priests, none can mediate at all. Roman Catholicism embraces Mary as mediator. Pope Leo XIII wrote this, quote, Nothing comes to us except through Mary's mediation, for such is God's will, end of quote. Pope Pius X declared Mary as, quote, the most powerful mediatrix and advocate of the whole world with her divine son, a glorious intermediary, end of quote. St. Bernard of Clairvaux popularized the phrase to Jesus through Mary. Friends, there is one mediator, Jesus Christ Christ. To look to any other mediator is to show contempt for Christ and severe ingratitude to God for his precious provision of Christ. Friends, Jesus Christ is enough. He's enough. Whatever you've done to offend the holy God, Jesus Christ alone is the mediator who can reconcile you to God, who I hope has reconciled you to God. One mediator was also Paul's basis for praying evangelistically to one God and Savior. Now let's turn to what Christ actually accomplished as mediator. This brings us to the next point. There is one ransom. There is one ransom. The beauty of verse 6 will appear for you if you understand two important gospel terms ransom and reconciliation. Ransom and reconciliation. A ransom is a payment uh, made in exchange for a hostage to obtain the hostage. Redemption is a similar term in Scripture. Understand this about a ransom. When a ransom is paid, the hostage is simultaneously freed and acquired by the one paying the ransom. In other words, the paying of the ransom equals The complete possession of the hostage. It is not a potential possession, not even a probable possession. It is an actual possession precisely because payment is made. That is extremely important to remember. Reconciliation is the inescapable result of ransom, or you could say, redemption and redemption, reconciliation is when the alienated persons are brought together again to enjoy sweet relationship. When a ransom is paid, reconciliation is certain. It's certain. That is extremely important to remember. Reconciliation in the Old Testament uh, uh, shows up, is related to the Old Testament doctrine of the atonement, of atonement. Uh, in, In the 1520s, atonement was equated with reconciliation between God and sinners. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a dim picture of the glorious atonement of Jesus Christ. Israel sacrificed animals in their place, which represented payment for sin, And reconciliation, well actually more than that, removal of their sin, payment of sin, the removal of their sin, along with the removal of its penalty, cleansing from their sin, and reconciliation with God. The sacrificial system, of course, was only a shadow of Christ uh, who fulfilled the final, who was the final perfect sacrifice himself. So the important thing to remember is that when atonement is made, all the demands are satisfied and reconciliation is achieved. It's actually achieved. Now, we must try to understand the controversial phrase, who gave himself as a ransom for all. All right, this little phrase requires meticulous study and thought. Uh, th- this for you could be Mount Denali or Mount Rainier. Uh, th- this could be one of those peaks where you're gasping for air, uh, trying to see the beauty, but worried about how you feel at the moment, all right? The air might seem for some of you pretty thin on this peak. So breathe deeply and keep climbing. Here's a summary of the meaning of verse 6. Jesus Christ, the one mediator, gave himself to God on a Roman cross as a substitute ransom in exchange for sinners. His life as ransom to God bought sinners from enslavement to sin and death, rescued them from the wrath and justice of God, and reconciled them to God, with God. His substitutionary atonement secured reconciliation to God. All the ransomed are reconciled. That's beautiful. That's that's breathtaking. He made it happen. It did happen. But verse 6 is theologically intricate. So perhaps these four words can help you see what's in this verse. The substitutionary sacrifice of Christ as ransom was selfless, sacrificial, substitutionary, and securing. And you can correct the the notes on that. Securing. Number one, selfless. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In one supremely selfless act, Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for God's enemies to reconcile them to God. The selflessness of Jesus is supremely beautiful and shows you the heart of God. Number two, sacrificial. The phrase gave himself means sacrifice. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5.2 that Christ loved them and gave himself up for them, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The, the, the life of Christ was a sacrificial payment to God, not to Satan as some suggest, in order to obtain Sinners. In his priestly intercession for God's people, Hebrews 9:26 says this, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His sacrificial ransom put sin away. Number 3, substitutionary. This is essential to the gospel. You will not get the gospel until you get this. Jesus Christ gave himself in the place of sinners. Here the term ransom means substitution. The Greek word for ransom is lutron, used twice in the New Testament, but here Paul added a prefix to it, anti, which means in the place of. As Leon Morris puts it, anti-lutron is substitute ransom. Jesus Christ took the place of sinners to obtain sinners in order to reconcile sinners to God. Number four, curing. The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a ransom was securing in that it actually achieved an exchange bringing beautiful reconciliation. A medi- as mediator, and please consider this as mediator, Jesus never fails. He does not fail in his mediatorial work. So the giving of himself as ransom was not only sufficient, but entirely fruitful in attaining reconciliation to those he ransoms. Ransom and rent- reconciliation are inseparable. Here's a, here's a little tip. If you're ever at a boring dinner party with Christians, all right, and you're like, man, this is dragging. We got to stir this up a bit. All you need to do is bring up verse 6 and watch the sparks fly. I mean, this could be really fun. So just bury that little tip there for you for dinner parties. It could be really fun for you, actually. This, th- th- to make the point, this is a hotly debated issue among Christians. All right, because, and here's why, how you interpret all, one word, all, in verse 6, reveals your understanding of the nature and the extent of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Did Christ die to make reconciliation with God a possibility, or did he die to make it an actuality, a reality? This question is intricate, and time escapes us. To consider the angles and all the different texts, man, it it gets overwhelming, folks. There's tons to look at for this. Uh, It was very difficult for me to know what to include and exclude and and how to be clear and how to be concise, how to love you in this, how to to be most helpful to you in this. So I will just say flat out, I am insufficient for these things. All righty. Now, that's been said, but you knew that before. But I still, even though in my insufficiency, I still hope to show you a glimpse of the beauty and the glory of God in verse 6. A glimpse into the beauty and glory of the absolute sovereignty and power of God in salvation. So let me begin here. And you need to pay attention, or you will miss the beauty and the glory. So please pay attention. All means different things in different contexts, as we have seen already in the past two weeks. All means different things in different contexts. We essentially have two options of what all means in verse 6, all without exception or all without distinction. Each view, depending on how you interpret it, will take you in opposite directions when it comes to the nature and the extent of of the atonement of Jesus Christ did Jesus Christ give himself as a ransom for all people without exception every single person throughout history and my answer is no no and I've prepared you already for why I would say no so let me explain in case you've missed some connections here The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ as ransom actually achieved reconciliation with God for the ransomed. That's the nature of a ransom, it successfully obtains the hostage. But if every single person throughout history is ransomed and therefore reconciled with God, God has nothing against Hitler or Stalin or anyone, and he would be unjust to sentence any ransomed person to hell. So logically, universal ransom implies universalism, that everyone gets saved, and that idea is entirely contrary to Scripture. But... To be fair, not everyone who interprets all in a universal way is a universalist. Every Christian, every single Christian that you know of and that they limit Christ's atonement in some way. Okay, hold with me here. And one way some Christians limit Christ's atonement is by saying Christ ransom all without exception, but then maintain that only those who believe receive the effects and benefits of the ransom, including reconciliation to God. That's limiting. And that's true in one sense, but that understanding of universal atonement or ransom is problematic for many, many reasons not the least of which is this, and I will hone in on one. Okay, I can't go into all the other stuff. The text lends me to go in one direction, and that's what I've really um, striven to do. Is that right? I don't even know. Let's move on. A universal meaning of all, in verse six, fails to understand the nature and the extent of a ransom. Ransom. The nature of biblical ransom is that it actually obtains the hostage. Possession is exchanged. Reconciliation is accomplished. The extent of a ransom is that only those who are ransomed obtain and, and, and are reconciled and, and enjoy a relationship to God. Sadly, Charles, Charlie Ross was never reconciled to his pa- parents. Why? Because a ransom wasn't paid. For him, So, hang with me here. Did Christ actually take a person's place if they are never then reconciled with God? Did Christ actually make the payment if that person is never reconciled to God? Did Christ actually avert the wrath of God from a person who then suffers the wrath of God forever in hell? Did Christ actually ransom and obtain a person if they remain enslaved to sin and death? If Christ is the ransom for all without exception, do the ransomed people go to hell? Do redeemed people go to hell? Do forgiven people go to hell? Do people whom Christ has paid for and obtained obtained possession of and given freedom to still go to hell? And my answer is no. Because those whom Christ ransoms, Christ reconciles to God. That is what atonement means. And if the success and application of the ransom depend on the act of faith of the hostage, it makes the act of faith the definitive action of ransom and reconciliation. And it ignores the fact that in the great exchange, repentance and faith are provided by God to the hostage, A universal ransom would mean a co-ransoming effort of both Christ and the hostage. And that is foreign in biblical ransom, redemption, and reconciliation. A ransom assumes the hostage does absolutely nothing. That's the idea of ransom. That's the idea of redemption. Charlie Ross was in a position where he could do absolutely nothing for himself. He needed something done for him. He needed something outside of himself to be offered in the place of himself to secure his reconciliation with his parents. It didn't come. One devotional explained it like this, quote, Christ's death truly and eternally secured our redemption. Now, I'm just going to pause. That should do something inside of you you should be like, yes, I am secure. God has bought me. I am his. That's how your heart should go. When you hear things like that, continue with the quote, we do not experience the blessing of the atonement because we have faith. Rather, we have faith because Jesus actually atoned for our sins and sent His Spirit to give us the gift of faith. Hallelujah! Or if this doesn't happen, nobody gets saved. Nobody gets ransomed. One scholar similarly noted this. Christ, by His death, procured for His people not only salvation, but all the means leading to the enjoyment of it. Consequently, his intention in dying must be limited to those who do repent and believe and not extended to the whole human race, end of quote. So we might call this a particular ransom rather than universal ransom, which is the nature of a ransom. What ransom do you know was paid to one group that was holding one captive and all the other captives were set free? That's not the nature of a ransom. In Matthew 1 the angel said to give the virgin's infant the name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. He will save is future tense indicative mood. Meaning, meaning this on the cross, Christ would accomplish a real and actual salvation as opposed to a possible salvation. He will save Christ as the mediator is successful in everything he sets his mind to do. Not hopefully to be successful in everything he sets his mind to do. He does everything perfectly. He does everything completely. And notice the angel said that Jesus would save his people from their sins. Not all people, his people. And John 10, in John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for whom? For his sheep. Not all the sheep, his sheep. Read that passage. Go back to what we did many years ago in John. Whom did Christ ransom? Matthew 20, verse 28, and Mark 10, 45 say that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Falling before the Lamb, the celestial chorus of, of Revelation 5 sang in unison, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Then in Revelation 14:4, 4, says, uh, it says this, have been redeemed from mankind. Christ redeemed the elect from mankind. Titus 2.14 weighs in on this. Paul told Titus, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Are you getting that link? Possession, redemption, ransom, Reconciliation, Christ's ransom gave him possession of the ransomed. Hebrews 9.12 is particularly helpful here. It says about Christ's mediatorial work, pay close attention to this, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. Christ's substitute ransom secured eternal redemption for God's chosen people alone. In the famous suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53, Isaiah prophesied that the righteous one would, quote, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities, the iniquities of the many. It is God's chosen remnant, his people, his elect, who are justified Isaiah added that he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Paul said this to the church of Corinth, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us redemption. Jesus Christ is redemption, he is ransom, he is atonement for those who are in Christ. To be clear, what I'm saying is that Christ did not die for all without exception. He died for all without distinction. We call this limited atonement or definite atonement or particular atonement or personal atonement, which simply means Christ gave himself as a ransom for all types and classes of people, more precisely the elect from every tribe, language, people, and nation. See, only God's chosen people will be reconciled to God. Is that right? Do you disagree? Only God's chosen people will be reconciled to God. The other option is that everyone will be reconciled to God, and that's universalism, and then you're not a Christian anymore if you embrace that. that, that that's how I see it. Limiting the scope of all in verse six and interpreting it as all without distinction is consistent with Paul's use of all people and all in verses one and verse four which we have already seen in past weeks. All without distinction is consistent with Paul's desired correction of the false teachers mishandling the law, as we saw earlier. It is also consistent with Paul's commission to go to the Gentiles, which Paul mentions in verse 7. And it is also reasonable, considering Paul wrote man Christ Jesus and not Jew Christ Jesus. If you believe that God desires all people without exception to be saved... And that God decreed all people without exception to be saved. And that Christ is the substitute ransom for all people without exception. And that someone can be ransomed without being reconciled to God. And that faith is the decisive factor in whether a person experiences the benefits and application of Christ's ransom. You will have much trouble reconciling your view with clear Doctrines of scripture including predestination, election, reprobation, effectual calling, regeneration, and justification by God's gift of faith. And you will, whether, whether you want to or not, or mean to or not, you will call into question God's absolute sovereignty and man's absolute inability. Here's one more thing to consider to the assumption that the Father's wrath is due all the sins of all the people. And the Son underwent punishment for all the sins of all men, all people, meaning universal atonement. John Owen asks this very poignant question. Why are not all men free from the punishment due unto their sins? And then he responds like this. You answer, because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. They don't believe. That's why they... And John Owen continues, I ask, is this unbelief a sin or is it not? If it be, then Christ suffered the punishment due unto it, or he did not. If he did, why must that hinder them more than their other sins for which he died? If he did not, he did not die for all their sins. Do you follow his logic? So then, if Christ gave himself as a ransom for all people without exception, therein paying the debt of all their sins, how is it that anyone can still be required to pay the debt for their sins in hell? Friends, people go to hell because there is still a debt for them to pay that has not already been paid. Like Charlie Ross, no one has paid the ransom They have no mediator. Now, I humbly submit these things to you. I know they're controversial. I'm guessing the air might seem really thin for some of you up here. Um, For some of you, I may actually be raising a lot more questions than I am actually answering questions. And I I recognize that. But, But I want to encourage you keep climbing. Keep climbing. One sermon's not going to do justice for this. Keep climbing. Keep climbing so that you can see the glory of God, so that you can see the beauty of God in these things. Follow the Spirit to greater heights to see more of the glory and the beauty of God. My last two points are short. There is one gospel. Paul said in verse 6 that the news of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice of ransom is the testimony given at the proper time. The, the atonement of Jesus Christ testifies that God has a compassionate and an evangelistic heart. And Jesus, the one mediator, came and achieved reconciliation at just the right time. Paul said in Romans 5, 6 that at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. This one gospel is the fuel of our mission. There is one mission. The word testimony from verse 6 implies giving testimony of the ransom sacrifice of Christ. Paul said in verse 7, "For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth." Paul was sent to bear witness, to bear testimony to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ as ransom for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. Salvation is offered in the gospel to all men without exception. Therefore, salvation must be preached to all men without exception. The preaching of Christ, giving himself as a ransom for all, that was Paul's life. That was the heartbeat of his mission. More and more people, all the nations, every person must hear about this. Perhaps some doubted his apostolic authority, so Paul added, I am telling the truth. I am not lying. Now here, here's how I like to wrap up a sensitive sermon. Whatever your view of verse six, if you are there sitting there this morning and you're like, pastor, I am not on board with much of what you've said because of how, what you've done with verse six, which I hope you see the logic for and, and hope that you see that I've been very fair to Paul's intent in the text. But if, you're, if, if that is really, really a struggle for you, whatever your view of verse six, and whatever you have understood this morning, please consider this. The one God has a compassionate and evangelistic heart. Sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners. Christ saves sinners by mediation, by standing between them and God as the final and effective sacrifice which satisfies the demands of the law, satisfied the justice of God, turned away the wrath of God, paid the sin debt in full, liberated unto eternal life, and obtained reconciliation with God for the enjoyment of God forever. This is the gospel and, and this gospel creates urgency in the church to pray for the salvation uh, and godliness of others so that God is glorified and pleased in the advance and application of the gospel in all of life. That's what we're building to. That point, which is the point of, of verses 1 through 7. There is one God, one mediator, one ransom, one gospel, and one mission. Our mission is to pray that the gospel grips the hearts of unbelievers and saves them. Whatever your view, can you not pray for that? Whatever my view, are we not united in what Paul said to pray for the salvation of all men? We are united in that. That, that I think, is the primary thrust of what Paul is saying here. Of course he's talking about the atonement, but I don't think the atonement is his primary focus He's bringing these things up to get us to look, to pray our eyes out, our hearts out for people who are lost. Our mission is to take this gospel to unbelievers so that they can see the beauty and the glory of our one God, our one mediator, our one ransom, and our one gospel. Will you pray? Will you proclaim this gospel? Father, these are deep waters. And I pray for your sovereign grace to be at work through your spirit and your word. God, how insufficient Jonathan Shirk is for these things. How insufficient we all are for these things. And yet, God, you have communicated to us through words on a page. Grammar is important to the heart of God, to you. And so I pray that we study our eyes out in these passages to see the glory of God that is there. And anywhere that we need to be corrected or or we are not following the Spirit, oh God, rebuke us gently in your fatherly care. Discipline us so that we can see what you want us to see and glorify and praise you for who you really are and for what you have actually done in your Son, Jesus Christ. You are not a God of potential. You are a God of actuality and reality. You have accomplished things in your divine sovereignty. And we pray that we would find great delight in that. And when we are confused and when we can't think right and when we're like, I don't even know, I pray that your your kind and fatherly hand would provide for us all that we need in your spirit and in your son to rightly discern the truth. All for your glory. We want to glorify you. Jerusalem Church will be a gospel-centered church by your grace. And so would you work in us to help us see clearly? We all see very dimly and, and you're opening our eyes to see clearly. Would you do that? Because you are a good God, a God of truth, a God who saves. You actually saved us Thank you, thank you, thank you. We are grateful and we love you, God. Amen.